0: You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good afternoon. As we start today's class, we have, we're discussing as the Jewish people leave Egypt. And as the Jewish people leave Egypt last week, they left Egypt, they're making their way out of Egypt. And as they make their way out of Egypt, they then come across where God tells them to stop by the Red Sea or makes them go in a weird way. This way they should be able to confuse Pharaoh. Pharaoh should think that the Jewish people are stuck by the Red Sea. And because of that, Pharaoh comes out with his army and comes to chase the Jewish people by causing Pharaoh to follow the Jewish people into the Red Sea. Interesting thing to see if read really. So, one of the interesting things, just a little side note, if you look at the map of how the Jewish people went, they actually took a little U-turn. They went into the sea and then come back almost on the same side that they went in from. And probably only for the reason to be able to get the, Jew- the Egyptians to follow them into the sea and to be able to drown the Egyptians. Regardless of that, but there's, as the Torah continues to tell us about the story of the Jewish people, they sing song to God, and we talk about the Jewish people's time that they left Egypt. At the end of the 1970s, when the Jew when the Israel was making a peace treaty with the Camp David Accords, there was a very uh, big influx of Jewish journalists who then wanted to go to Egypt to be able to cover the issue of the Camp David Accord. And part of the the discussions and negotiations back and forth was happening in Egypt, and half of it was happening in Israel, the back and forths that were going on. And all of a sudden, halachic question came to the forefront, which was, are Jewish religious uh, journalists allowed to go to the land of Egypt. As we see in this week's Torah reading, and the question was, because as you see in this week's land of Egypt, the Jewish people are standing at the forefront, or right before the Red Sea, and they're complaining to God, what are we going to do? The Egyptians are behind us, the sea is in front of us, we want to wage war. And there were four groups of people. One came along and said, we're going to wage war against the Egyptians. The other said, let's go back to Egypt. The other said, let's jump into the sea. God told them, stand where you are. Don't worry, God will wage war for you. The way you see Egypt today again, you will never see them. You will never see Egypt again. And this question was, because the Torah tells us you will never see Egypt again, as we're going to get to in a moment, were they allowed to go back to Egypt? This question was then turned to the chief rabbi at the time. And the chief rabbi at the time, the Sephardic chief rabbi, his name was Rabbi Avadio Yosef, who discusses this at length in his responses, known as the Yechav Adas. And he talks about everything that the journalists had to go through at the time. But this question was not only given to Rabbi Avadi Yosef at the time, for the journalists that were going to Egypt, but it was also about Rabbi Avadi Yosef, because he himself was a rabbi in Egypt for three years. When he was 23 years old, the chief rabbi of Israel at the time was Rabbi Benzion zion Uziel, and he was, I think, the second, the third chief rabbi of Israel. And he recognized the greatness of this young scholar. And at the time, the rabbi in Egypt, the chief rabbi of Egypt, Rabbi Appendi, was, needed some help. And therefore, he asked Rabbi Avadi Yosef if he can go there to help him out as he was a chief, a Sephardic rabbi, a young Sephardic rabbi to go to help the chief rabbi of Egypt at the time. He went there for about three years, studying with the people, leading the people in Egypt, until the government... Once the state of Israel became an official state and became in, uh, it became antagonistic and Egypt became antagonistic towards the land of Israel, they were making him a lot of problems and therefore he had to leave Egypt. So he himself, Rabbi Avadi Yosef, how was he allowed to live in Egypt? If it's as clearly in our Torah reading that the way you say Egypt today, you will never see them again. The question is not only about Rabbi Avadi Yosef who lived there only for three years, but the question even goes on greater scholars before him. To the greatest of all scholars, Maimonides, who was one of the first codifiers of Jewish law. Maimonides talks about this, uh, this concept. Maimonides, from the age of 27, until his passing on the eve of Pesach, when he was 69 years old, he lived in Egypt. What's even more amazing is that Maimonides himself writes at length in his book of code of laws against living in the land of Egypt. So how is it that Maimonides lived in Egypt while he spoke against living in Egypt? Even more so in our question is, even according to Maimonides, who says one is not allowed to live in Egypt, why is it that Egypt, out of all countries of the world, where Jewish people lived in, do we say you can't live in Egypt? Why out of all countries? There's so many other countries that people lived in. People, the Jewish people lived in Babylonia, in Rome, Spain, Germany, you name a country. Jewish people were there and they were kicked out of You know, they say a story right before 1939, 1940, right when the World War II started, this Jewish guy walks into a travel agent in Berlin and he goes over to the travel agent and he's looking to see which country can he go to. The travel agent takes the whole globe out and says, okay, this country, they don't let like Jews in. This country, they don't like Jews in. This country, they don't let like Jews in. Finally, he turns to the travel agent and says, maybe you got another world I can go to? <laughs> But the bottom line is if you look at the world the, the countries around us, almost every country you name it, Jewish people were persecuted in. Are we not gonna live in a country because Jewish people were persecuted? And why is Egypt out of all the countries selected to say that we're not allowed to live in that Egypt, we're not allowed to live in that place? And as we elaborate today and as we go through, we will look at one of the fascinating concepts and one of the foundations and probably the fundamentals of Hasidic thought and especially in the way the Rebbe taught us the Hasidic thought is that every place we come to it's not just by happenstance that we're there. It is in a reason that we're there that God made by divine providence that that person should be there and the very fact that you live in a certain place and you are in a certain place is because that place needs you and you need to be in that place. And especially that this week we are just two days before the 10th of Shvat. the 10th of Shvat is the time when the previous Rebbe passed away, in the day that the Rebbe assumed leadership over 73 years ago, where the Rebbe was one of the great teachers of this concept of explaining and taking and realizing that where a person is is because they have a responsibility for the people of that place and to take part into actualizing the reason of why a person comes to a certain place. So let's understand it a little bit deeper from the Hasidic lens and then we will be able to appreciate what the Torah is telling us in this week's Torah reading and the laws that pertain to it. On the 15th of Nisan was the day that the Jewish people were awaiting that they can finally lead Egypt. The day that the Jewish people were told by God after 400 years of intense slavery, 210 years of actual slavery, 80 years of in real intense and bitter slavery the Jewish people finally see the doors of Egypt open before them and the Jewish people are able to exit. Where are they going to? As God told them, as Moses promised to them, to the mountain that God will give them the Ten Commandments, the Torah, that they now become into a nation. As the Jewish people are making their way out of Egypt, led by the cloud, led by the fire by night, or GPS that gives them the the directions of where to go, God says, you know, there are two ways that you can get to the land of Israel. There is one way that the Jewish people can go, going northwest, on the side of the Mediterranean, during the side of the Palestinian, and the, the Palestinians that were living at the time, through Gaza, Ashkelon, take a few days until they will finally get to the promised land. But God was concerned that they shouldn't have another war, therefore being disheartened about the very fact that they just left Egypt, that they have to again encounter a war, and therefore he took them to, through a little about, roundabout way. The roundabout way brought them Two, standing in front of the Red Sea. As they come in front of the Red Sea, there are three days where God tells them to stay there, and then he tells them to, so to speak, look like they're making a U-turn, to turn back. And they come to a place which is locked in. What does it mean, locked in? And why do they come to that place? As we mentioned earlier, is because that Pharaoh should think that the Jewish people are stuck. There's nowhere for them to go. What does this mean? The Talmud explains to them, and based on the words of the Torah, it says that they stood by Pihachiros and Balzaphon. What was Pi Pihachiros? Pihachiros meant that if you came to that place, there was nowhere to go. You were locked from all four sides, trapped by Egypt. Egypt was known by a place that no slave ever escaped Egypt in 200 years. Because as soon as you came out of Egypt, you were either... There were mountains on the side that had very strong peaks, so nobody was able to jump or climb over the mountains. There was a tower in the front that was watching, an observatory tower, so any slave that tried to escape, they would catch them right away. Then there was the sea in front of them, so there was also no option. And then on another side, there were two idols that the Egyptians believed was the way that trapped any slave that tried to go. And especially any Egyptian slave who tried to escape believed in those idols as it was a trap, and therefore no slave was able to escape. God told the Jewish people that they should stay in that area, So Pharaoh would assume, A, that his idols are working, B, that the sea is a trap for them as well, observing that they can see the Jews and they will be able to attack them and kill them or bring them back to Egypt either way that they wanted. So six days pass after the Jewish people leave Egypt, three days of traveling, three days of making the U-turn, and finally the Egyptians catch up to the Jewish people. The Egyptians are behind them, the sea is in front of them, they have the tall mountains to one side, the idol on the other. What did the Jews to do? The Jews all of a sudden start complaining to Moshe. What are we going to do? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to be able to kill us? Why did you take us here? What did you do to us? One said let's rather jump into the sea. While the other said let's fight Egypt. The other said let's go back to Egypt. While the others say pray to God. And God dismissed all of these accounts. God dismissed all of these uh, opinions. And the words that God told them in this week's Torah reading is, Stand and watch the way you see the Egyptians today, you'll never see them again. What does this mean? The commentaries tell us simply it means that God is telling the Jewish people, the way you see the Egyptians behind you, it's the end of the Egyptian dynasty, the end of the Egyptian monarchy, the end of the Egyptian superpower, they're gone. There's no more Egyptian, you're nothing to worry about. However, Nachmanides adds something to this. And Ahmadis tells us this is not only a promise that God was telling the Jewish people then, but this is also a positive commandment that applies to every single Jew. And Ahmadis says that what God told the Jewish people, the way you see the Egyptians today, you will never see them again, was a positive commandment, one of the 248 positive commandments in the 613 commandments, that you cannot go back, you will never see Egypt again. A Jew should not return to the land of Egypt. What does this mean? So one may say, why? It's just maybe just a story. How does Nachmanides know this? Well, if we look a little bit further in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy where it tells us about the obligation of having a king, a Jewish king, and one of the obligations of the Jewish king, or one of the commandments, the restrictions that are given to the Jewish king, is that he can't have too many wives, and he can't have too many horses. And one of the reasons why he can't have too many horses is because the best horses came from Egypt. This, the horses, then he would have to go back to Egypt. Egypt and to travel there and to get the best horses, which will cause the Jewish people to return back to Egypt, therefore the Torah says he can't have too many horses. So we see again, this commandment is reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses tells the Jewish people about the Jewish king, that they should not return to the land of Egypt. In the words of Maimonides, Maimonides says, a person he uses in his book of Kings, he says, a Jew can live anywhere he wants in the world besides Egypt. The same idea we also find. The book Mechilta. Mechilta which was a commentary on the Talmud. A commentary on the Code of Jewish Law. A commentary on the Torah. And says there are three times that the Jewish people proposed and tried to move back to Egypt. Every single time of those three times that they tried to go back to Egypt was met with dismal failure. The three times that they tried to go back was the first time. During the time of the First Temple. And as you recall, during the time of the First Temple... King Solomon, after King Solomon, it split the Jewish kingdom. There was the kingdom of Judea and there was the kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes in one place and two and a half tribes in another. The two and a half tribes that were with the Holy Temple, they were more aligned with following what God told them to do, while the other ten tribes, they were the ones serving idolatry. And eventually, they were being forced out of the land of Israel by a king called Sancheriv. The ten king, the ten tribes, their leaders, their king at the time, Hosea, turned to the king of Egypt and asking for help to be able to defeat San who was then the ruling power who was going through different countries and uh, demolishing nations and taking people and mixing them up from all over and he basically ruled the universe to a certain extent at the time. And he asked of the king of Egypt to come help him together and of course that was met with dismal failure to the extent that San came and exiled those 10 tribes out of the land of Israel until today we don't know where those 10 tribes are. And that began the destruction of the first temple. After the destruction of the first temple, the Jewish people were then um, exiled from the land of Israel. There were still a few Jews remaining. The Babylonians destroyed the Jewish settlement of the land of Israel. And the last few that were there was a fellow by the name of Gedaliah ben Achikam. He was the mayor of Jerusalem. He was the one that the Babylonians appointed to, so to speak, oversee the leftover Jews that were there. He was then killed because some, uh, some felt that he was co-conspiring with the Babylonian government or the Roman government. And that's why we have the fast right after Rosh Hashanah is called some Gedalia. But the person who was in charge of the army that time to be able to fight and who actually killed Gedalia and tried to fight back against the uh, authorities at the time, was a fellow by the name of Yochanan ben Kerach. And he decided to go to Egypt and try to resettle the Jewish people in Egypt. In this way, to be able to overcome and eventually get back into the land of Israel. However, once he got to Egypt, he was then killed, and him and his entire community. So that was time number two, where again the Jewish people tried to populate the land of Egypt. Time number three, and probably the most significant out of all of them, was during the times of the Second Temple. During the times of the Second Temple, there was a big Jewish community that settled in Alexandria. Alexandria, which was named after the King Great Alexander, and they settled a very large Jewish community to the extent that the Jewish community at the time was hundreds of thousands of Jews lived in Alexandria. They were very famous for being very wealthy, very big, ostentatious. They were able to be very brilliant. They knew a lot of sciences and things like that as well. One of the things that they had was the largest synagogue in the world was built in Alexandria because outside in the land of Israel was the Holy Temple. But the largest synagogue outside of Egypt was then at the time of Alexandria to the extent that the Talmud says, whoever hasn't seen How the Jews of Alexandria live has not seen how great the Jewish people live. They had a a synagogue in Alexandria that they weren't able to hear the cantor from one end to the other to the extent that they had flags that would show the uh, people where they were up to in the davening. So they would pick up a flag so people would know where they were listening to what part of the prayer service they were up to. That's how large the synagogue was, that they said if you walked from one end to the other, you could have did the whole prayer service in one shot. That's how large the synagogue in Alexandria, that's how many Jewish people, that just tells you how great the people were and the population was at the time in Alexandria. And still and all, at the end of day, Tyrannus, the king of Rome, after the destruction of the second temple, that was his next stop. And wiped everybody out there. Killed out the entire the people of Alexandria. So we see over here, Egypt is probably the only place in the world where Jews are not allowed to live. Other than any other place, and what that's because, some want to say, as you can see, luck doesn't have it for the Jewish people there. Any place, any person that went there, any time people were there, they were not able to survive. So our question is, why not? What is so bad about the land of Egypt? Why is it that the land of Egypt, Jewish people don't have any luck staying there? Why is it in the land of Egypt that it's so bad, that all of a sudden we can't tolerate it? And if it's so bad, A, why was there a Jewish community just recently, 50, 60 years ago, there was a Jewish community there? And even more so, our question is, how did Maimonides live there for so long of his life? If you're not supposed to live there, why was Maimonides there? And the question is even more so on Maimonides, who he himself says, You're not allowed to live there. He himself lived there for most of his life. So there are a few halachic authorities who talk about saying that the prohibition of going back to Egypt was only for the Jews at the time of the temple. And only for the Jewish people at the time when we're talking about of the Jewish people that came out of Egypt. Why? Because the Jewish people that were in Egypt and Egypt at that time was the most despicable place of the land. It was a place of absolute um, immorality, absolute uh, idolatry. Therefore, the concern of the Jewish people moving back to Egypt was a concern of them being influenced by the people of that time, and therefore, there was a prohibition of them moving back to Egypt. But in the words of the great commentators, they say, today... There's almost every, Rabbeinu Bach, uses the terminology, he says every single country in the world has just the same impurities as Egypt had then, and therefore the prohibition doesn't apply today, because only then when people, when the land of Egypt, because they lived in Egypt, so we're concerned they might become like Egypt if they should return there, and therefore there was a prohibition. So too, another commentary from the 11th century, the Ritba, says also the prohibition of the Jewish people living in the land of Egypt was only for the nation that left Egypt and not, however, now that we're living amongst the non-Jews anyway and we're living in exile, regardless, every single place is no worse than the land of Egypt. Those are all good explanations. All good, except for Maimonides. The problem is that Maimonides himself doesn't only say it in theory, but brings it down in code of Jewish law. As he's a codifier of Jewish law, says one is not allowed to live in Egypt, and if one is not allowed to live in Egypt, how then? And he looks at this as an eternal prohibition, not only a prohibition for the people of the time that left Egypt, but for every single time, every single generation, people are not allowed to leave Egypt. How then can Maimonides himself not practice what he preaches? If he himself says he's not allowed to leave in Egypt, how come he was able to live in Egypt? He takes this off, uh, he takes this based on the Jerusalem Talmud, where the Jerusalem Talmud says that one is not allowed to return to Egypt to live there, but he's allowed to go back there to do business. One is not allowed to return to Egypt to stay there, but only temporarily one was allowed to go there. Therefore, some wanted to suggest that why Rabbi Avadia Yosef, who actually quotes this Jerusalem Talmud, was able to go back to Egypt, was because he didn't go there permanently, he only went there temporarily. Or the people that went back to Egypt at that time, maybe because they went there only to do business, whatever it may be. The interesting thing is that we find actually, even Maimonides, who lived in Egypt, he asked that he not be buried in Egypt. And in fact, it's a fascinating story that before he died, there was no way for them to get his body from Egypt all the way to Israel. Because of the dangers of what's going through the desert. And he told his people, at least this is the way the story goes, take my coffin, just tie it to a donkey, put a paper in it, who it is, and where it should be buried in the land of Tiberia, Tiberias, and it will already make it there. And the story goes that the donkey went and walked all the way, made it to Tiberius. and when it came to Tiberias, they knew that they should bury him, and that's why today the Maimonides is buried in Tiberias. We also find... That there are many people that even there's a student of Maimonides who used to say that even though Maimonides himself lived in Egypt, every single day that he lived in Egypt, he was struck or he was upset by the fact that he lived in Egypt. There's a t- student of Maimonides who writes that every single time Maimonides would write a letter while he was in Egypt, he would sign and say, Maimonides, who's Rabbi Moshe Hasvadi, Rabbi Moshe of Spain, who's living in Egypt every single day abrogating. Four commandments. That means he himself recognized and he felt that he was doing the the worst thing by staying in Egypt. The only problem with that is that we don't find any letter of Maimonides actually writing that. And because of that, many want to say that there must be a deeper reason that Maimonides said it there. As well, we also find, if you see, Nicanor. There were doors on the Holy Temple, of the second Holy Temple. There were these beautiful brass doors. And the story of how those brass doors came there was that it came from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. That means the fellow, there was a fellow by the name of Nicanor, he went to Alexandria in Egypt, had these because of that beautiful craftsmanship. And as we mentioned, there were people who had, people of means. And he made these big, beautiful, heavy, solid doors. It says that it took 10 koanim, 10 young koanim to open the doors. That's how heavy they were. And he took those doors and he brought them to the Holy Temple to adorn the Holy Temple. While he was on the boat the boat started sinking. So they took him and they threw him off the boat because they felt that his doors were the ones that were causing the boat to sink. But he didn't want to let go of the doors. So he held on to the door and they pushed him off the boat while he was holding on to the, boat, to the doors. And those doors floated to Jerusalem. So we see that there was already people Jewish people living in Egypt and the very fact that they used them From Egypt means that there was some type of acknowledgement that the Jewish people were allowed to live there at the time. So what gave them the permission to live there if they were not allowed to live in Egypt? Another interesting thing is that we find, one of the uh, commentaries also explain why Maimonides was able to live in Egypt. Rabbi Kapach, who's in a commentary on Maimonides, says that one of the reasons why Maimonides was allowed to live in Egypt, again, either because temporarily... Or we find that Nicanor, for example, went there for business to be able to get these doors. But another reason could be Maimonides moved to Egypt for a specific reason. He was there because at that time, and we see this in his letters that he wrote for the Yemenites, the Karaites were very big in Egypt. And they were trying to deter Jewish people from studying Torah the way they were supposed to. And he went there to fight them single-handedly, to write letters against them and to wage war against the Karaites who were misinterpreting the words of the Torah and to be able to set the record straight. So therefore he had an obligation to be there, so there was a specific reason that he went there. With this, Rabbi David ben Zimra, who was also a great commentator at the time, also he lived in about the 13th century. And Rabbi David ben Zimra says that the reason why, and I think he also lived in Egypt, the reason why he went to Egypt was because we are not there to stay. We are only there temporarily, and our goal eventually is to leave from there. This is just our safe haven for the moment. And Maimonides also had to go there, because since he, had, he was forced to serve as a doctor and an advisor for the sultan at the time, so therefore he had no choice and he had to live in Egypt. So it's not because we want to, it's because we were forced to. The same idea Rabbi Avada Yosef ruled for himself at the time, that the very fact that because at that time there was the Camp David Accords and they were dealing together between the Egyptians, so therefore it was a temporary reason, the journalists were allowed to uh, travel to Egypt as well. Maimonides himself and Rabbi Avadi Yosef at the time also looked at only and viewed it as temporarily, and therefore they were allowed to go there. But this takes us back to our original question. While we went through the halachic, if you're allowed to or not allowed to live there, and why today Jews did live there, and even just as late, in the last 50, 60 years ago, there was a massive Jewish community in the land of Egypt, in Cairo, and Alexandria, and so on. The question is still, and our question is, why is Egypt the only place in the universe where the Torah forbids Jews to move back to? What is it about the Jewish, what is it about the land of Egypt that we say that especially according to Maimonides that it's not just a temporary restriction because of the Egyptians that were living there then but even today this is land that Jewish people shouldn't be on what's wrong with the land of Egypt that we shouldn't be there that one's not allowed to go there or live there In the words of one of the commentators of codifiers of Jewish law puts it that it is a prohibition forever for a Jew to live in Egypt and the question is why is Egypt different than any other land in the world and different than any other place in the universe, where all of a sudden you're not allowed to live there. Even more so the question is, Egypt has a certain specific prohibition in the Torah. For example, we have a prohibition in the Torah, you're not allowed to antagonize the Egyptian. Why? And here's an interesting thing. The Torah is very fond of the concept and is very particular that we always have to show gratitude. And we have to show gratitude for people that were hospitable to us. You walk into somebody's home, you should thank them for being to be able to be there. We were at home in the Egyptian territory. Did they enslave us? Yes. But before they enslaved us, they were accommodating to us. And therefore, we are not allowed to antagonize an Egyptian as gratitude for the very fact that they welcomed us. So if we're not allowed to antagonize, and here it's seemingly an oxymoron. From one hand, we're not allowed to antagonize the Egyptians because they were accommodating to us. And at the same time we're saying, this is the only place we're not allowed to live. Why are we are not allowed to live there? Now, if you look at the people, if you look at the place of Egypt, one of the things we find, one of the reasons why we're not allowed to live in Egypt, is because the people in the land of Egypt were corrupt. We're full of incest, full of immorality and idolatry. One may say, well, the people there don't live there any longer. And over here is something very interesting that we find... In the Torah. Later on in the Torah we come that the Jewish people come in the book of Numbers. They come to a place called Shittim. Which means nonsense, foolishness. And the commentators explain that even though people right now weren't foolish. But because this was a place that was conducive to it. The area is entrenched with foolishness, with folly, with incest. So even though the same people from Egypt are not living there right now. The place itself is conducive to such type of behavior. That means once people live there for such a long amount of time and it becomes entrenched within the, so to speak, the soil of the place already causes people to behave in a certain way. It also works like that for the positive. Like we know the land of Israel, the soil of the place, has a tendency of holiness as well, but it also has the opposite of it. There was an interesting thing that in... um, So so we have the concept over here that where we find that any other country, our question is, any other country is it that Jewish people don't go to? There was a situation, and it's interesting, that in common times, in modern times I should say, there was a rabbi in 1978, there was a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Toledano, came from the city of Toledo, Spain. And he said that one of the reasons how his family got the name Toledano was that when they were expelled from the Spanish Inquisition, when they were expelled from Spain, they made a promise that they would never return to Spain. And the word Toledano means Toledo, no. That we will not go back to Toledo. That's what his thing was. And therefore in 1978 they wanted to make an um, a edict not to live in Germany. That after World War II, after what the Germans did, that nobody should live in Germany again. And most rabbis came up with the, against it. And the reason is because if you look at every single country in the universe... All of them have been not nice to the Jews. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to say? That every single country that the Jews were, uh, were persecuted and you're not going to live there? You're almost not going to find a country that's like that. Take England, um, whatever you want. And therefore they said, even though this fellow Rabbi Todi said this, he says, we haven't seen it anywhere else, other documented other than this specific family. So it could be it was something that this family took upon themselves that they wouldn't move back to Spain. But it doesn't mean, and we see that later on, Jewish communities did move back to those places. And we see that many places where Jewish people were expelled from, 25 years later, 50 years later, they came back. Whether it was France, whether it was Turkey, whether it was uh, the Armenian Empire, whatever it may be. First of all, because countries change, governments change, and whatever it may be. So the very fact that we don't find it anywhere that even after, that's why after the Holocaust, Jews are still living in Germany until today, Jews live in Germany. Many Jews tried to go back to their countries where they, to their cities and places that they came from even after the Holocaust to rebuild it. Many weren't successful. Many was very difficult for. But the real bottom line is there is no country in the world other than Egypt where there's a prohibition to live in. Why is Egypt so different? Going back to what we started off before looking at the Hasidic explanation and the Hasidic outlook of what a person's objective is we're able to understand this. A Jew doesn't come to a place by happenstance, by chance. You don't just end up someplace. The reason why you are in a specific place is because you have a calling for that place. You come to that place by some divine providence is because the place where you are needs you. And guess what? Egypt is a place that doesn't need you. And therefore you don't have to be there. That means... It's explained and it's taught in the Talmud that before a person's born, there are three things that are announced from heaven who they're going to marry, what they're going to do for a living, and where they're going to live. While a person is still even before they're born, why does it make a difference where the person's going to live? What does it make a difference? Okay, I can understand who you're going to marry, what you're going to do for an occupation, but why does it make a difference where you're going to live? is because the, Tal- the Talmud and Jewish thought is telling us here that where you live is not just so happens to be I move to this place. But it's giving you a calling and a mission for where you are because there are three people that a person has effect on. A person has effect on himself, on his family and on his place of living. Wherever we are and wherever we go, God gives us the ability that we should utilize our potential, our qualities, and our fact that we live in a certain area to be able to have an effect on our neighbors and our surroundings that we're there. The same thing is, whenever a Jewish person comes to a certain place, and if you look at it, look at a fascinating fact. The Jewish people are 0.1% of the population. Right? What are they, 1.2? Not even 1.2. Go to every corner of the universe, you'll find a Jew. There's so few Jews... But in every, you don't see Chinese in every single place. There are more Chinese than there are Jews. And you go to Indonesia, uh, I'm sorry, you go to, to South Africa, you're not going to find a Chinese person there. You'll find a Jewish guy there. You go to Zimbabwe, you'll find a Jew. You're not going to find a Chinese. You're not going to find a Spanish person. Why is it the Jewish people in every single corner of the earth? You will find a Jew. There's not one country in the universe that doesn't have a Jew. Okay, minus Saudi Arabia, probably there's a Jew too. Why is it? And there's an interesting thing Because when God created the world God created sparks Kabbalah explains to us Godly sparks that are in every single place around the universe And in every place of the universe The Jew has to be there to elevate those godly sparks And in order for those godly sparks to be elevated The only way they can be elevated Is by a Jew coming to that place Think about it in the Torah, is there anything in the Torah that was just picked out of a hat that says, who gets that job? Nothing. Until the book of Numbers, you don't even find the concept of a lottery. You find a lottery that when it comes to the laws of Yom Kippur, there was two goats. Which goat would be brought as a sacrifice and which were would be brought onto the mountain? But who was chosen to lead the Jewish people? God has picked. Who was chosen to be the high priest? God chose Who chose Abraham? Who chose the Jewish people? God didn't make a lottery. Okay, I have 70 nations. We're going to pick the Jewish people out of a hat. Everything had a specific choice. Not only that, if somebody tried to refute the choice, they ended up in the ground. Look where Korach ended up. What's the only thing in all of Judaism that was picked out by a lottery was where the Jewish people are going to live? That means once God chose that the land of Israel should be given to the Jewish people, in the book of Numbers, and the Torah reading of Pinchas, God says, "Ach, only with a lottery will the land be split. Now why a lottery? So practically speaking, in a very simple way, the reason why a lottery had to be used. So one guy shouldn't say, hey, he got a better piece of real estate than I did. Like this, everybody came out of the hat, there's no complaints, everybody got what they got. But over here is something even greater. It's not just a lottery that nobody should have any complaint and say, well, this guy got this and that guy got this. The weaker person shouldn't say, oh, look, they had more protection, they had nepotism, they got that land. But over here is something even deeper. What's the concept of a lottery? Who decides the lottery? If you, look in the, if you look in the book of Numbers when it says about the lottery, it doesn't say just with the lottery. It was by the mouth of God that decided that this piece of land, this parcel of land, this belonged to this tribe, and this parcel of land belonged to that tribe. Because what it's telling us is that that parcel of land is waiting for you. Waiting for you to uplift it. Waiting for you to change it. Waiting for you to elevate the godly sparks that are there. You're not there by chance. The mouth of God shows that you should be in this specific place in this specific time, that you should do something about it. Think about a story we're soon going to be reading. Purim is coming up in a month. We'll be reading in the Megillah. Esther is in the king's palace. And all of a sudden, Mordecai finds out about the terrible decree that's about to happen. And what does Mordecai send a message to Esther? Esther tells Esther, You need to go to the king and you have to approach the king and save the Jews. Esther responds, How can I? I haven't spoken to the king in 30 days. If I go in and I'm not called for I can be killed. And she even responds and says, Esther turns to her husband Mordecai, according to some they were married. If I go in Tachashverosh, the law is that if a married woman, even though they get divorced, but then has a relationship with a man in between, cannot go back to her original husband. If I go in Tachashverosh and have a relationship with him, I cannot come back to you. Why should I do this? It's severing my connection. What, is, what does Mordechai respond? Mordechai responds and tells her, If you're going to be quiet at this time, Salvation and safe and security will come to the Jews from someplace else. And you and your parents' home will be lost forever. But remember, and he finishes off at the last five words, And who knows? If it's not for this time, that you became queen. What's he saying and who knows? What was Mordecai asking, warning her and saying, you're going to be lost forever. It's going to be killed. You're going to be lost. Why is he threatening her? And then he finishes off and says, who knows if this is the time? What does it mean who knows? I know. I know. I'm the leader of the generation. And I'm telling you, your mission, your calling is, go and do it. Why does he make it in this rhetorical type of question? What's he asking her? What's he threatening her with? And the Rebbe explains as follows. And in fact, there has to be a comma in between the words, who knows? And then this is the reason why you have come become queen. He's telling Esther, you're coming in with a concern. I haven't been by the king for 30 days. It might sever my relationship with you. It may destroy, who knows if it's going to help. So Mordechai responds, you're right. mi Who knows? I can't answer all those questions. We don't know why all the things, why you were put there. But one thing you need to know. It is for this reason that you became queen. The very fact that you are in the queen's palace means that you belong there. The very fact that you have a relationship with the king means that you are able to save the Jews. I don't know the answers. I don't know why you were put there. I don't know the whys. But I know the what. I know why. I know you're there. And the very fact you're there means that you have a mission to accomplish. You were placed there not by chance. Because God said you belong there. He gash l'malchus, this is your purpose in the world. Because then if you don't do it, it's for naught. You didn't. You lose like, your, your purpose. You didn't bring to fruition the ultimate reason of what you're there for. What this is telling us is that every single one of us has a purpose and a reason of why we're there. There was once a chassad of the Tzamech Tzaddik, the chassad of the Tzamech always wanted to go to the land of Israel. Always had a desire to move to Israel. And anytime time he spoke about it, he wanted to go to the land of Israel. Once the tzemach called him in and told him, he said, why do you want to go to the Israel? What do you want to go to Israel for? He says, oh, the holiness, the purity. Then tzemach told him, make here Eretz Yisrael. You are here right now. You need to make the place where you are holy. God put you here. Make it holy. Use your opportunities, use your skills, use your abilities to make this place holy. This is the job that God gives us. Now we understand why we can't go back to Egypt. Why can't we go back to Egypt? Because there's nothing for a Jewish person to do there. Nothing for you to do there in the spiritual sense. It was all uplifted. It was all changed. It was all transformed. You were put in this world for a mission. You go to Egypt, there's nothing for you to do. Because that part of the world was already elevated. You accomplished a mission there already. And that's why when the Jewish people left Egypt, it says, and they saved Egypt. Because they already uplifted all the sparks there. There was no need for them to be there. The only reason why a Jew should have to be in a certain place is to be able to uplift the spirituality. Is because they have a mission and purpose to be there. There's a famous story about a student, a chassid of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Yosef of Yeshenkovitz. This chassid, Rabbi Yosef, was a very, very scholarly, great learned individual. And he was one of the very elite students of the Alter Rebbe. And as his time was getting older, he was looking for a job to make a living, and therefore he was looking for a place to become a rabbi. And there were different opportunities that came up. And when he came to the Alter Rebbe to ask the Alter Rebbe where he should take a position as being a rabbi, the Alter Rebbe looked at him and said, for the best of your soul, you should be a wagon driver. Looked at him and said, In amazement, to be a wagon driver, I'm gonna go let go of everything I studied and start dealing with horses and wagons. Okay, he dismissed it and he continued his studies. Ten years later, he, somebody came to him and approached him and asked him if he wants to be a rabbi, all of a sudden he remembered what the Alta Rebbe told him that if for the betterment of his soul he should be a wagon driver. So he closed his books, went to the marketplace. And he went, he was already an older man at the time, he was in his 60s. And he goes to the marketplace and he wants to be a wagon driver. And he goes over to the people there by the wagon stands, you know, by the place where people pick up a hitch, a cab. And he says, maybe you can teach me how to be a wagon driver. They all start laughing at him, what, you an old man, going to be a wagon driver? you a scholar, what are you going to be a wagon driver for? So he says, no, I want to be a wagon driver. So they teach him. And of course, one guy had Rachmanus on him, had some pity on him, and started teaching him how to be a wagon driver. And he, of course, he had no clue. And he comes back home all dirty and muddy and full of tar and oil because you have to be able to wheel, grease the wagon oil, the, the oils in the wagon and all that stuff. And he feels like, you know, that this is what he did. His wife looks at him, dirty and sloppy, and says, what happened to you today? She says, well, I was learning to be a wagon driver. She looks at him and says, you fell off your head or something? So he explained to her. He says, well, the altar told me that for the betterment of my soul, I have to be a wagon driver. So she was a real sincere Jewish, good Jewish woman. She said if so, she went and sold her jewelry and bought a horse, and wagon, that he should be a wagon driver. And he became a wagon driver. And for one year, he was a wagon driver, cabbing people back and forth. Of course, he didn't have much time to study, but he was cabbing people back and forth as a wagon driver. In the second year of being a wagon driver, he stops in an inn, and the Jewish innkeeper tells him, by the way, there's a fellow here who's Jewish. He's not religious any longer. He's a very well-respected fellow. He is a uh, advisor to the local nobleman. And he's looking for a wagon driver. Maybe you can help him out. So he said, okay. So he tells the guy, he's looking for a ride. He says, I need to leave tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. He says, 8 o'clock is too early. I have to daven first. After I finish davening, I can take you. This Jew looks at him and says, listen here, I'm paying the bucks. You listen to what I have to say. He says, sorry Charlie, you want me to take you? I'm going to have to daven first. The guy had no other ride, this Jew. So he says, okay, what time do you finish davening? He says, well, davening, I start at 7 until about 9. He didn't, you know, daven 1, 2, 3. He took his time, he was a real chassid. So it's about 30, 10. He says, fine, he has no choice. They go to sleep. Middle of the night, this Jew hears crying. Crying. He's looking around, who's crying? He looks in his neighboring room. The wagon driver is sitting in the middle of the night. There's something called tikkun chatzois that at midnight they sit down on the floor and they cry and say to him about the destruction of the temple. And he's peeking through the door of his wagon driver and he's watching him cry and so on. He knocks on the door and he asks him, please tell me what's going on over here. What are you crying about? Middle of the night, something hurt you, something bothering you. you lost. He says, no, I'm crying about the destruction of the holy temple and this is what we do every single night. The Jew is so moved and he told him, please teach me more about Judaism teach me how I can mend my ways and become back observant. And he brought him back with him to the middle Rebbe, to the second Chabad Rebbe, the alt Rebbe already passed away. And he brought him back with him to the second Chabad Rebbe. And he brought him back and he became fully observant on the Chassid. And at that time, this was already a year and a half into his wagon driver, the middle Rebbe told him, now you can go be a rabbi. Your job is done. This was the reason why my father told you to become a wagon driver. And he eventually became a rabbi. And the middle neighbor wrote a book for him. So scholarly, called Bekeah Hiverman, in the introduction of the book was the story. So this is, the, this is where we see a person can end up in different places. And you never know why. Because to be able to, for the elevation of the soul, he has to be there. The same idea is also when we talk about. What do we know? At what point? Yes, God chooses for us a place to be. But at what point do we say, you know what? Maybe this place is not for me. How do I know that this is for my soul? How do I know that this is what God chose for me? Maybe someplace else. Maybe I have to be here for two years and be someplace else for another two years. Where do, where do I know and where am I able to understand and appreciate, understand where the places for me? How do I make that decision to recognize and see if this is the place that God had destined for me? And the Rebbe explains this in an interesting dispute based in a detractate of in the, of, uh, in the tractate of Gittin about divorce. And over there, there's an interesting debate. When is a person allowed to divorce his wife? What's a cause for divorce? You know, today in different, uh, the, today in different municipalities, there can be no-fault divorce, or yes-fault divorce, but what's a cause for divorce? And there are three opinions. Rabbi Akiva says, even if he finds somebody better, he can divorce the first wife. Beis Hilal says, if she burnt his dish. Beishamai says, you can never divorce her unless she does something specifically wrong. And over here, there's three ways. The Rebbe says, this, is the, this exact message is not necessarily talking about when a person gets married, but also talks about your message in life, your job in life. When you come to a place, there are three ways how a person can say why he should be able to leave the place. Number one, Rabbi Akiva. He finds a place where he'll be happier. This place doesn't give him something much joy. Or another place, this place is not doing it for him. He doesn't feel good, he's not being successful. He doesn't feel like he's gaining much here. Or, the third place is, if he sees that what he's doing is detrimental. It's causing him not only to grow, not only not to grow, but not only is he not being successful, but it's a detriment to who he is. Over here, the Rebbe explains, yes, technically, the halacha is like Basilo. The halach is, I mean, Jewish law follows that if you don't see success in what you're doing, then you can move to another place. But truly, if a person should be careful enough before you move, and before a person says, I want to leave my place that God destined to give to me, he should see, is it a detriment to him or is he just not being successful because he hasn't tried his best? And that's a very difficult fine line where a person can decide where and what he has to do. But the most important message out of it all is to recognize and realize that every place we come to and every place we are, it's not by happenstance. It's because God is saying this place is here for you and you have a mission that you ought to accomplish here. When we go with that approach, automatically then we see the challenges differently, and we see the successes differently. Because we are there for a purpose. Now of course, if it happens to be that it's a detriment to the individual, let's say because of that he doesn't serve God better. Or because of that he's not fine, he's not happy there. Whatever it may be, those are all reasons for divorce. Those are all reasons to move on to move to a place but even when he comes to the next place why are you moving there not because of the weather not because it's beautiful not beca- because you have a mission and a, a job to accomplish there and therefore we can't move back to Egypt and therefore even Maimonides who lived in Egypt he didn't live in Egypt because he was there to elevate the spiritual it was because he had a mission that he had to help people outside Egypt or because there was no other place for him to go to but as Jewish people Egypt is not a place for us because everything there was already elevated on the other end everything else in the world where there are so many other places in the world, in fact, there's an interesting statement, that why are the Jewish people all over the world, and says, why did God spread Jews to every single corner of the universe, that there should be more converts? And the Rebbe explains, it doesn't mean converts literally, to bring converts, because we know as Jewish people, we don't proselytize, we don't look to bring converts in. What does it mean? Converts mean converting the evil into good. Converting the ungodly sparks into godly sparks. Wherever a Jew is, he has an obligation to elevate the godly sparks that are there. We've got to convert the place. Meaning we've got to convert the ungodly, the immorality, whatever may be in the place and bring a Jewish energy and a light of God to that place. As the Altarebbe tells us in the Tanya, chapter 37, And when all the great sparks will be unified, when all the great sparks will be uplifted, just like when the Jewish people finally finished elevating the sparks in the land of Egypt, were they then able to be redeemed from Egypt, so too. We are in every single corner of the earth and that's why the Rebbe, when it came, starting Yud Shvat, which was 73 years ago Wednesday, what was his first mission statement? To reach out to every single Jewish love wherever they are in the universe. Because our job is to elevate the sparks wherever they may be in the universe to bring them to a higher level. Once we reach out to every single Jew, elevating every single place of the world, completing our job of elevating the sparks, refining this world, then we know we'll be able to open up our eyes and see in a revealed way the divine presence in every single place of the world with the coming of Moshiach now.